and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health. Today, around 30% today who are in prison are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. And we know that about 80% of them have been in there before. The re-incarceration rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders versus non-Aboriginal Australians. And what's being done to address this disparity. And ever get frustrated with the ref? You'll hear about a new technology training referees in the NRL to boost their decision-making abilities. Mental health and how it has influenced the world of art has been showcased through some of history's most acclaimed artists and performers. Through artistic expression, you can catch a glimpse or peruse into someone's life experience. It's this intersection between art and mental health that some are saying should receive more attention by health professionals than it currently is. An event called Creating Reciprocal Understanding in Psychiatry is bringing together mental health professionals and a number of artists with a history of mental health problems to establish a new dialogue through the medium of poetry and the arts. Colin Hambrook is an artist and founder of Disability Arts Online, a website that reviews and showcases artists who live with a disability, and he'll be one of the performers on the night. Colin joined me in studio alongside Sarah Hobolt, Equity and Diversity Officer at the University of Technology, Sydney, who are helping to facilitate the event. My history, I have a physical condition, but my history from childhood is a series of, of mental health conditions from when I was very young. And I had a pretty difficult childhood and psychiatry didn't treat us very well. And so a lot of my work really has, has been about unravelling that and, and what that means. And I got into conversation with Gail Sobert from Outlandish Arts, probably first back at the Unlimited Festival in London in 2015, I think it was. And then I started to talk to her about events that I'd been going to at the what's called the Dragon Cafe. It's actually in a church in Borough, and it's a very vibrant community of mental health service users and mental health professionals who've, who've kind of come together to create a creative space there's art, there's poetry, there's spoken word, there are workshops happening there constantly. And I got to interview um, Jim Pope from Playing On Theatre. And what he had been doing was to go into mental health units and to create workshop programs in which the mental health professionals would role play being a patient. Right. And the patients would role play being the mental health professional. And what started to happen as a result of that was that the psychiatrists were seeing the patient's ability to respond to situations because role play is a kind of spontaneous theatrical device. 
And so they were seeing other sides to their patients in their care and were able to make decisions about releasing patients from being on, under mental health section. Wow. Wow, interesting. That's, re- that's really powerful. Yeah. In, a, in a much, much quicker way than than the routine of seeing a patient for five minutes in a ward round, you know, once a week. They were seeing other qualities that enabled them to make decisions about how they were responding to the medication, how they were responding to thinking about being in the in the outside world. And so the Dragon Cafe have a program called Recreate Psychiatry in which artists who make work about mental health and mental health professionals together within that environment to create conversations and to, to think of, of different ways of using the arts to empower people through self-expression and through developing a socially engaged practice because the sort of person-centered programs are kind of focus within mental health programs generally they can be very good but it's it's always about somebody else telling you what to do mm-hmm. it's always you know mm-hmm. what's for your own good that reciprocity is so significant and and so unique because we're so used to that doing for or doing to kind of perspective in the in the health professions and that's a core component of of the event that we're organizing on the 4th of August is that sense of reciprocity and that mutual conversation. And what does that dialogue sound like? Well, it allows mental health professionals to talk about their problems in an open and on an even playing field with service users. I think the problem that a lot of psychiatrists have is that, that you know they get trained in general practice. That training kind of enables them to think about what needs to happen You've got a crisis, somebody has an accident, breaks a leg, has a heart problem, whatever. They're trained to deal with emergencies and to cure situations. So the training is all, is all about doing two. But with mental health, there isn't a cure. If you've got a mental health condition, you know, there are strategies to learn how to cope. Uh, the medication can help in a crisis in the short term, but then it also becomes a, a kind of long-term thing, which can also be very disabling. And yeah. Sarah, because you're an artist yourself yeah. as well, why do you see art being a perfect medium to try and facilitate this new dialogue? What I really like about art is that it's a real problem-solving creative space. So if we're looking at social justice and we're looking at social change. And so for me, when we bring in that creativity and art into the conversation – we're asking everyone to broaden their thinking and to open up to that sense of maybe not really knowing the answer, but hey, let's all be in there and discuss it together as mutual, uh, you know, building this mutual understanding rather than what Colin's saying about that expert and client kind of relationship. Being in the art space is a safe space to kind of go, Let's move that expertise aside, that expert client, oppressed, oppressor or powerful, powerless kind of thing aside and let's actually go, I have something to offer. You have something to offer. Let's talk about this creatively so then it's a lot more enjoyable as well. And I really like what Colin's saying about what is actually disabling. And so for me, part of the dialogue is 
when we talk about mental health, we're actually talking about access requirements as well because, as Colin was saying, there there is no cure. It's not about being fixed. It's about a health management plan and it's about actually let's work out what accessibility actually is. So to do that creatively is actually going to be quite fun. <laughs> and to have a healthcare system that is welcoming to these notions as well. Yeah, yeah. There's lots to be gained for mental health professionals. Art programs within mental hospitals and prisons are being cut. Art therapy is seen as a kind of add-on and they're losing out on those programs. Why not bring artists into those spaces, artists who, who've had experiences similar to the people in, in those institutions? And that's such an important point as well, the, the disability-led approach and actually the voice of the artist who has experienced the situation in terms of reaching out to those who well work in the healthcare space, mm. how do you go about doing that and bringing them into an environment that might be somewhat unfamiliar to them as a healthcare professional? What we're hoping is is to attract mental health professionals who are, who are interested in, in what we're talking about and to experience and to give them an, another kind of frame, really. And, yeah, um, I, I, would, I would just ask to be brave and, and take the risk and come join us for the conversation. So this is a poem from F- Fool's Gold and it's a piece of monologue f- from a character called The Mirror. He is an ocean. He is an ocean raised in air and living in a bubble below the surface of things. He is a bright sea extending the full wrap of the orb of the earth and to the edges of the wind. He is yesterday, he is tomorrow, and all spaces in between. And he is not these things. He is the deepest breath, one that seems never to stop filling the lungs. And he is an even longer out-breath. He is the rattling cry of the corvid reaching to break the chains of this moment and to take in the ocean of generations back and back to the time when hydrogen and oxygen first decided to mate, the primary coupling of matter. He is the birth of spirit into the tearless cry of newborn life. He is the centre and the periphery. He is the melancholy grace of the wings of the hooping crane the sail of the sea swallow, the starling and the dunlin. He is a salmon pushing up river and all living things searching for grace. He is without boundary. He is everything and all time and he is nothing. He is of no consequence, less than a single beat in the story of knowledge. He is the roar of flame at the core of the groaning planet, turning as a restless fetus seeking revelation in the womb of its mother. He is a whisper of red, the all-consuming passion at the start and end of it all. Colin Hambrook, founder of Disability Arts Online, and Sarah Hobolt, Equity and Diversity Officer in Access and Inclusion from the University of Technology, Sydney. And the Creating Reciprocal Understanding in Psychiatry event is being held at the University of Technology, Sydney, this upcoming Friday, the 4th of August. It kicks off at 6.30pm. They're still taking registrations for the event, so if you want to find out more, we'll put it up on the Think Health page on the 2SER website, and you can also check out more at outlandisharts.net.au. You're listening to Think Health 
on 2SER 107.3. Nearly one quarter of Australia's prison population is made up by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, with 80% already have been incarcerated before their current sentence. And on top of that, half of this 80% have been in prison multiple times. Post-prison service delivery and prevention programs can help to reduce the chances of reincarceration, but often fall short due to lack of funding or an inability to reach those they aim to engage. Megan Williams, Wiradjuri woman and senior lecturer from the University of Technology, Sydney, has worked in health service and delivery for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for more than 20 years. And her recent work is looking at informal, elder-run Aboriginal community groups and how they can help keep their loved ones beyond the bars. The criminal justice system rehabilitation's quite different to, say, public health rehabilitation and certainly to Aboriginal health and healing. And really a lot of people in the criminal justice system have multiple health issues, so it's really hard for a system to respond. Like, which issue is the priority issue? Just the one presenting or the underlying ones? And then coming from public health perspective, we see the underlying issues that are about employment or economics, poverty, education, and also for Aboriginal people, history, the impact of history over, you know, decades in our families. So that means the more support and better connections people can have post-release, um, hopefully the less risk that they go back in. We know that their sentence length gets longer the more they're incarcerated. It doesn't get shorter based on having done the time in the past. And therefore, all those connections to the community are lost and damaged in the process. I had as a general rule with my methodology, why measure misery? And I needed as an individual, you know, someone within a family and a community to seek out the strengths and solutions. And what are some of those solutions? So my focus was only on the roles of Aboriginal people and Aboriginal organisations Aboriginal people wear many hats, like one Aboriginal woman or man, they might be a service provider in like an Aboriginal community controlled organisation or community justice group. But more than likely they're on some reference group for some research project, like mine or something. They might also be on like the local government Aboriginal community advisory group or on the Premier's advisory group. They might also be the aunt or uncle or parent or brother or sister of someone in the prison system. And they might support elders who do work in and out of prison. So there's multiple hats. So with the mob, with Aboriginal people, it's all the insider knowledge that means you can deliver really timely care, dialogue, conversation, and also connecting people to other people. Rather than that one person already wearing many hats, having to do more and more and more, I saw Aboriginal people quite skilled at going, right, you need to talk to this person, or I'm going to bring this person in and then you two can go sort that through, or here's an organisation that does that, or here's some other connection. So the role is as a connector, not as a solver necessarily, 
or rescuer, but to connect and just keep connecting and connecting. More connections are made then and more connections are made. Aboriginal men's groups and women's groups, that's where I would put my money. And why is that? What, what was it in particular about those groups that you would put your money on? People who go to those groups sometimes, or oh, they really have a diverse membership. Sometimes you'll have someone there who's highly experienced professional right next to someone who's spent 15 years in and out of prison that hasn't really had the chance to work or have a career. But they're both there as Aboriginal people, first and foremost, to look at things like shared experiences as Aboriginal people, identity, the need for healing. Every family, regardless of what they've achieved, has those stories of trauma and damage and disruption from the past, especially from stolen generations. So those men's and women's groups, yeah, they can be fluid. They're pretty cheap to run, but I wouldn't ever want to say, so don't fund them, if you know what I mean. There's a challenge in the neoliberal context where I'm sure policy makers of funding bodies would say, well, they can run themselves, we don't need to fund them. But they do much better when there is some resourcing And that can be definitely in funds, but also in partnerships and, you know, donations and volunteering contributions. So in the prison context, because they're autonomous groups, it's viable to bring them in, in prison, and for those relationships to be able to continue and be sustained so that when someone comes out, they've got some familiar faces to go back to, to join again without those fellas needing to be professionals and accredited and, you know, I guess all the other barriers that might come with professional service delivery. So, you know, there's quite a lot of work to do even just there. You know, people come with a lot of damage and like people who've been so profoundly hurt or damaged or forgotten or worried, you know, people have really hit that place where they've had to dig deep within themselves and think about their own inequalities, not inequality, social inequality, but inner qualities, you know, and both of them are just for me the two key words in Aboriginal ways of caregiving. The social inequality plays into it. And one key way to come to terms with that is to help each other understand our own inner qualities. And then together we can address, you know, systemic issues. People can address systemic issues without their own healing journey, but you often see laced with aggression or it's not sustainable because it's so hard to do the policy advocacy and to stand up and to be a representative and all the flack that comes with that without knowing how to draw on your own strengths. To go back to the end goal or direction you see this and your research travelling toward, is it to look at not only providing these community services but to reduce the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are reincarcerated? It's a goal to reach in terms of generating the evidence. I've recently done a review, a very large and detailed review of any research from around the world that shows how reincarceration rates are reduced 
and there's scant evidence among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples or among Indigenous peoples. And really I could only come up with a handful of what we call grey literature. And we have got bits of research that I would stitch together as a patchwork quilt that kind of then make a logical sense. So, you know, we do know that improving mental health and well-being can reduce recidivism, reincarceration. So that we might have one study or three studies that shows that and then there'll be a few studies that show that coordinated case management that begins in prison with release planning and post-release planning and post-release follow-up reduces recidivism. So we can sort of stitch together those and that's exactly what men's groups can do because you know who's in prison. You know, the elders and the leaders, they pretty much know exactly who's in a centre say, in a town or even in a city, they'll know and they know pretty much which families they're connected to and what the stories of those families are. We're all connected, like so many families are related or connected or have shared experience. And so they'll often they'll know who's getting out when and where they're going and what they're going to have and what they need and they'll call people in to say, do this and come here and pick them up and run them over here. And you get dragged into stuff, you know. That's continuity of care. They're doing it and they quite naturally and they take responsibility. That's such a strong value of Aboriginal people to take responsibility. I know we see people visible who look like they're not taking responsibility, but there's factors involved in why they're not. You know, and rather than blame and shame them for that, it's kind of about understanding, well, if that was me, what would be causing me to end up in that situation? In fact, it could be me. It could have been me. It might still be me, you know. So i got to keep well, and part of keeping well is assisting others. Dr Megan Williams, Senior Lecturer in the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Have you ever been to a sports match and had a bone to pick with the ref? The role of the NRL referee, although not as heavy on contact, can be just as strenuous as the player's game itself, running near to 10 kilometres a game and constantly being on the ball to identify foul play and breach of match rules. Matt Jeffries is a PhD candidate from the University of Technology, Sydney, and is currently on his industry placement with the NRL referee's performance department. Matt's work is looking at improving the swiftness of decision-making among referees for two reasons. One, so the match plays out correctly and fairly, and two, so the referees don't get dragged through the mud by the media too often. The guys I work with at the top have been refereeing for sort of 30-plus years. As our boss says, some of them, you have to have these scars, which means you have to have the experience of being out there and making mistakes and then learning from your mistakes. Did you say scars? Yes, yes. So that's just a, a terminology that, that the boss uses saying that a lot of the refs have built up a bit of scar tissue over time and that's purely from making incorrect decisions and then having to be dragged through the media and sort of building up that resilience that way. Right, as opposed to, I guess, a physical scar. It's, yeah. it's a mental one. <laughs> just a, more of a mental resilience scar. So le- learning from your mistakes, really. And what's a mistake? What's a mistake a referee might typically make? Often it's in the papers, so anything that the, the crowd or the commentators perceive is wrong, 
and often, you know, the referees will put their hand up and say, yeah, I just made a mistake. I didn't see it like that. Or there was a wrong process throughout a decision. So one of the team members have got it wrong. And you might see on the weekends that the referees do wear a camera on their head in some games. So what I've been able to do is get some of that footage from the first person, so from the referee's perspective, and collate a database of decision-making clips. And from that, what we can do is have a look at the different decisions that the referees make throughout these clips and then the follow-up action that's required after the decision. And we've got these uh, glasses that they put on. They don't have any lens or anything in them, but built into the frame are three cameras that can triangulate the position of the pupil. So once we look at the data, we can actually see specifically what the referee was focusing on when he was looking at these clips. So if there is any decision differences, we can say, oh, perhaps he's looking at the wrong visual cues to come up with his, uh, with his final decision. What is the referee looking at and why are you trying to note that? Because at the top tier, you always have the two referees. In the junior levels, it's only the one referee system. So particularly for new guys coming through, it exposes them to a little bit of the perspective of the pocket ref or the assist ref that they might not have previously been exposed to. But for the more experienced guys that have been in this model for a long time now, what it can do is we can highlight certain areas. I can freeze frame the video, highlight certain areas, and then the software will actually spit back how many times they were looking at certain areas. So if there is a decision that's wrong, we can encourage them to look at other areas to get those visual cues to come up with the right decision. So once once I had the guys do their video clips, what I can then do is frame by frame, draw on what we call areas of interest. So for anyone still shot, I might draw area around the ruck, area around defending players, uh, where the ball is, and then the other referee as well. So just highlighting a few different visual cues that the referees might use to make their decisions. And then the software will then say, okay, they looked at they looked at the ball for a certain percentage of the time, or they revisited the ball two or three times. So it just gives us some metrics around what they're actually visually using to make their decisions. Oh, and so when you say drawing, like within this footage, you're actually using the program to, is it what, like highlight a certain area in a different color or like circle it or something? It's exactly that. It's exactly that. So the ball, I always put a red circle around and obviously we have a little bit more uh, room for error. And the ruck, for instance, is always an orange color. The other referee is a blue color. And just in one sort of still snapshot, there could be four or five different areas of interest that the referee might be looking at. And then when we analyze it, we can compare the novice to the sub-elite, to the elite guys to see if there are differences. And you said they put on these glasses. So is it? I'm kind of like envisioning somewhat of like a, a VR football match. Is it, is it VR-like or is it, what does it look like? Have you looked through them? <laughs> It's it's similar. Um, it, it, they're basically just like a big pair of goofy-looking glasses without any lenses at all in them. So if you can imagine sort of your dad's old retro sunnies or the big uh, big cricketers' uh, sunglasses that they used to wear, that's what they look like, but with no lens at all. And other than that, it's just normal because we didn't want to hinder the referees. We didn't want them to focus on the glasses. You, you make an interesting point with the VR, Jake, is that's, that's where I believe uh, the next evolution of referee training will go. So more and more other referees from basketball, for instance, or soccer over in Europe are wearing cameras. The next thing is to use a 3D camera and stitch that environment together so that we are limited in the footage that I've got is that you have to look where the referee was looking when he wore the camera. But if it was a 360 camera, you could then go into a sort of a VR environment and look wherever you want to look to get your um, visual cues What's the old, like, what's the end goal here? Is it to improve the referee ability? Is this, is this applicable into other fields, even perhaps beyond the world of sport? Yeah, definitely. 
the, the first objective is to improve the referee decision making, but more to understand, okay, if they're getting a decision wrong, is it because they're purely looking in the wrong area? So one for a training and talent ID tool for us to use going into the future. But now also that we've got the baseline results, we can look at different interventions. So I can fatigue the referees physically to see if that changes their gaze behaviour. How do you do that? There's a few different tasks. There's one called a Stroop test where they'll get a colour written on the screen and they have to tell me what colour it is, not what the word says. So it's it sounds like fun, but when you do it for half an hour, <laughs> it's quite mentally demanding. Um, or I might have them just read a magazine or something, something that's completely obscure and they're not really into. I guess that's also somewhat applicable to the referee being on the field, right? Because the way that you've explained it, and even just by watching a referee at any sort of sports match, like they're running around just as much as the players are when they're on the field, they're probably going to be somewhat fatigued anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. So we actually have GPS trackers on them, and that was one of my original PhD studies, just to quantify what they do on the field. So between the referees, the head referee probably runs eight to nine kilometres, and then the pocket referee runs a little bit more, nine to ten kilometres in a match. So we use, as a measure of intensity, we use metres per minute, and they sort of run between 80 to 90 metres per minute. So they're actually doing a fair bit of physical work out there. Obviously, they don't have the contact like the players do, but they are running around. So their heart rates are usually sit between 70 to 80% of their maximum. But what other researchers found and what we've found as well is that's sort of the ideal uh, heart rate for decision-making. So there's an inverted U hypothesis that other researchers looked into that your decision-making actually gets better and better as your heart rate increases to a certain point and then fades away really quickly when you push past that physical exertion barrier. So we actually like the referees to sit around 80% of their maximum heart rate, 70 to 80%, because it, it, it increases your arousal levels without affecting you so much that you, you're missing out on visual cues. So that's where we like them to sit, and that's where we'll actually train them when we're doing our brain training under fatigue sessions. I think we're the only people in the world that's actually exploring it in the way that we are at the moment with the advent of a lot of other referees in different sports wearing cameras as they're officiating. I think that there'll be more and more research into this field and also the the potential for broadcast partners to actually use more of the footage. I had to do a bit of a familiarisation session with the referees because it's a bit jumpy at the moment. But as that technology gets better and better, there'll be more image stabilisers so that the vision is actually more clear and more watchable. Right, because I can imagine some of the footage you would get, it's like someone's just strapped a GoPro to their head and it's like boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Originally, that's what it was, but now we've had um, progressions with sort of gyroscope technology. So it's not my camera, but Fox Sports are the guys that actually give us the camera and it sort of has a horizon stabiliser. So the camera itself will try to auto-adjust and then post getting the data, there's also other filters that we can apply to the vision so that it's a little less jerky, but... Still, it takes a little bit of time to watch it. Uh, some of the guys didn't like it very much, so they, they felt a bit seasick when you wear it. But <laughs> I've, I've watched that many games in it. It's just like watching footy now, and it's a really unique perspective. Matt Jeffries, PhD candidate from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's it for the show today. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app or iTunes. Just search for Think Health. While you're there, leave us a review. It really does help us get discovered. This show is made possible by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.